Hi everyone, welcome to the third edition of Things I Wish I'd Known with me, Morris McCracken. And Steve Robinson. Steve, do you want to tell everyone a little bit about why we're doing this podcast? Who's it for? Yeah, not a problem. We've both been in ministry for about 10 years and I think we look back and think, I wish I had known some stuff because I've had to figure it out over the last 10 years and, and, and figure out for myself and get advice from different people. So we want to chat, think through some of those things, hear from other people ask them what they wish they'd known and together try and figure out and move people forward in their leadership and in their ministry. Definitely. And today's our first interview with our good friend Graham, who works in a very urban area of Liverpool. The thing that really struck me about Graham Stee was um, the way he so graciously talks about people who do different ministry from him. Definitely not what I would have been like when I started in ministry, probably not what I'm like now. And that was a real learning point for me. What about you? Yeah, I would agree with that. But for me, one of the key things that came out was his joy. I had a real sense of joy when he was talking about people becoming Christians and people being engaged with the gospel, which really hit home to me, bearing in mind some of the difficulties that he, he's had since moving into the area and doing his ministry there. And for me, looking back, to know that however my life was going to pan out over the 10 years or the next 20 years, that it's the joy of the Lord that gives me the strength to continue. Yeah, great guys, hope you really enjoy it. Welcome everyone to the third edition of Things I Wish I'd Known. Um, I'm Morris McCracken from Christchurch, Liverpool. I'm Steve Robinson from Cornerstone Church, Liverpool. And we have a guest with us today who is... I'm Graham Peel from Northwood Chapel in Kirby. And just to recap, um, me and Steve started this podcast basically to pass on to... Um, younger pastors, particularly in the UK, some of the things we wish we'd known when we were starting off and to get some guests in who've got uh, experience in ministry, pass on some of that wisdom too. And our guest today, as he said, is Graham, who's a good friend of ours from uh, Kirby, which is that, is that count as North Liverpool, Graham? Or? Well, beyond the bounds of Liverpool technically, but yeah, northeast of Liverpool, about eight miles. Okay, great. Tell us a little bit about Kirby and about Northwood. Okay, so Kirby is a town of about 50,000 people, uh, an ancient town originally. Kirby means place of the church, a Viking town, that's how it's founded. Uh, and then in more recent years, it's become a new town. So mm. the slum clearances of Liverpool uh, led to the development of Kirby as a town amongst other places. And so we have uh, a town that's basically four quadrants. There's the centre where the shops and the market are. And around that we've got the four tribal areas. So we've got Northwood, where I am, South Dean, Westvale, and then what was Eastcroft originally, but then it's renamed over the years to Tower Hill. Okay, and what type of place is it? What, what's it like living there? Who lives there? 20 years ago, you perhaps would have described it as a working class town, mm. but that's not really accurate. We would be more uh, accurately described as a a benefits class town so mm. the significant majority of the people in the town do not work perhaps have never worked and live off the benefit system and quite well generally mm. uh, the population are predominantly Roman Catholic although mm. again that is changing the past 10 years we've seen uh, an influx of people from different cultures and backgrounds mm. but certainly when we first moved into Kirby 15 years ago it would be not unreasonable to describe it as a white ghetto, mm. whereas now we do have um, a much more multicultural uh, makeup because people have moved in uh, as asylum seekers or various different reasons coming in. But this year, working in the town centre in our week of outreach, I was struck by how different the population is mm. to what it was when we started uh, that particular venture in 2011. Mm. And tell us about that venture, tell us about Northwood Chapel, what's it like? 
So we're a very small church, probably about 25 if uh, everybody turns up on a Sunday. Um, we are uh, a congregation that spans the whole age range, which is great. Mm. Uh, so we have young families and we have people in their 90s. Mm. Uh, but there are people who are committed to serving the Lord despite our size. Mm. And we've been blessed to see the Lord use us in some quite remarkable ways. And perhaps the most obvious and visible uh, part of that is our week of outreach that we do in Kirby Town Centre uh, that was driven uh, by a, an understanding that Jesus uh, didn't want us to stay in our church building saying the gospel's in here if they'll come and get it, mm. but actually commanded us to go into all the world. So our version of that is uh, to turn up in the town centre, close to the market, and for a week we put on events which are casting the net, they draw people in. So um, in practical terms that looks like things like uh, bouncy castles, face painting, a football cage, a free barbecue serving excellent burgers, mm. and, uh, and then a stage from which we preach the gospel. Uh, directly as, as short sermon messages and also through uh, testimonies and we have guests who have various uh, gifts that cause people to stop and listen mm -hmm. so for example a couple of years back we had Henry Olonga mm -hmm. um, and he sang Nessendor brought the town centre to a standstill and that brings people in mm -hmm. and as people come in we then uh, use that opportunity to share the gospel with them so mm -hmm. over the course of a week I guess we get to share the gospel with uh, five to ten thousand people depending wow. on how the weather is mm. great passion for Kirby's great thing we could do a whole podcast just about that but um today particularly we're thinking about things we wish we'd known mm. and you've been at this for a little while probably picked up some things on the way what's the thing you'd like to talk about today the thing you wish you'd known well, I've been struggling to work out how to phrase it, and mm. I'm not sure I found an elegant answer to that question. But basically, I wish I'd known that the gospel is not built on education, employment, financial stability, and adherence to uh, the laws of the land. Mm. Because that's undoubtedly the mindset that I approached uh, pastoral ministry with unknowingly. Uh, but what I've now come to realise after many years uh, is that the gospel is actually built on grace mm. entirely and, and I wish I'd had somebody who could have sat down and explained that to me pointed out to him my own value system early in my days because it might have made the learning process a bit less painful and maybe I'd have been more effective in sharing the gospel in the early days of ministry too. Mm. Graham uh, I think it was about a year ago you um, we you spoke at one of our sort of gatherings of Liverpool pastors and when you were chatting about uh, your time at Northwood and Kirby, and just pick it, just picking up on something you you just said then, that just the whole sense of you wish your sort of perspective had been different as you stepped into that. Unpack that a little bit more for us in terms of what you mean. Well, I believe the phrase that I would have used in that particular presentation was Weltanschauung, which was a real uh, popular phrase with management consultants of the 1990s. That was on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> These are the lenses through which we perceive reality yeah. and they're coloured according to our uh, belief system. Uh, so you might use a simple version of that. He looks at the world through rose-colored spectacles. Mm. Well, my Weltanschau, without me being aware that I was even wearing these glasses, was coloured by the things that were important to my dad in bringing me up and then his dad before him. So those things that I mentioned were the key factors that governed how I lived my life. So education, I was taught right from my earliest days, you have to succeed in education. You have to get good qualifications, uh, O-levels, A-levels, degree, that's the right path to go because these will then lead you into the right kind of employment. 
And if you have good employment, you will be able to buy a good house. And if you buy a good house, you will be financially stable because houses, uh, certainly at the time my dad was teaching me, appreciate in value. So the better house you could buy, the better value, uh, more, more money you would make from that process. And, um, and then key important thing, keep the laws of the land because the very worst thing that can ever happen to a person, according to the tradition that I brought up in, is that they would be sent to prison. Now, I'll give you an example of that from our own family life. Um, cousin John adhered to those values remarkably, brilliantly. So he did really well at school, went to university, got a good degree, and became Barclays' youngest ever branch manager. Really was the high-flying uh, kid of the family, and uh, everybody was very pleased with his success. Couldn't help but notice, though, one Christmas, looking around, at where's Cousin John? And this kind of hush descended. And Cousin John, brilliant as he was, was not quite brilliant enough to outwit the fraud system at Barclays. <laughs> and so as he uh, helped himself to small amounts of money from many accounts, he was caught out on that and uh, was now in prison. Right, okay. But that's, to our family's way of thinking, that would be the very worst thing that could ever happen to a person. And so we were not allowed to speak even Cousin John's name from that mm -hmm. time forward. So those are the values that I, I had in my life that programmed me, and I perhaps wasn't aware to what extent they did. So what, what, what are the things with your time in Northwood? Give us some examples or maybe some stories or illustrations of where you started to realise that your lens that you were viewing ministry or viewing stepping into church leadership as we began to engage the people of northwood generally i became aware of a very patronizing and condescending attitude on my part and i don't know why because i don't particularly think a great deal of myself i don't think that i'm morally superior to people i've got my own raft of problems uh, but over the years I began to decode what it was it was the fact that very few of them had any kind of job at all very few of them had done any kind of education they'd perhaps turned up to school you know to fulfill the, the legal requirements but had not achieved anything from it um, they were all perfectly content to exist on the benefit system and to work around that to, to their best advantage and certainly prison uh, was just a just an occupational hazard. It's, it's a way of life. Everybody knew somebody in their family who was in prison. And because that was completely at odds with the, the me that I'd been brought up to be, that made me, um, well, as I say, condescending and patronising my approach to them. And, and I wasn't necessarily aware of it. So I'd be talking down to people uh, on the basis that I believed that my value set was better than their value set. And the life that I'd been brought up to live was better than the life that they had been brought up to live. And none of that had anything to do with the gospel at all. Mm -hmm. I just wondered, Graham, how then, talking about, the, it was almost like a cross-cultural experience then, basically, mm -hmm. you stepping into Kirby. And I guess lots of people who are listening to this would think, well, of course, your original culture was better. I mean, those are all the values that, you know, type of people who listen to podcasts tend to share what are some of the better things about the culture you've stepped into that has helped you sort of dismantle your spectacles that is a really difficult question to ask if you were to ask the people of Kirby what's good about Kirby they'd say their commitment to one another mm. and their passion for community mm. is very strong I'm not so sure about that because I noticed that when 
differences come and uh, difficulties arise that those things quickly seem to melt away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure. In terms of breaking through those those uh, preconceptions of my own, the my own value system, the route to, to recognising them and hopefully, with God's help, letting them go, uh, was moving into Kirby, for mm-hmm. sure. My wife and I had been away to a New Tribes Mission Conference mm-hmm. and we'd listened to various missionaries uh, talk about their experiences. And as we drove away from the conference, we both turned to each other almost simultaneously and said, Northwood is our tribe, isn't it? Mm. Therefore, we have to live with them. Now, we lived eight miles away in a place called Rainford, which may as well have been a million miles away. (laughs) So I'd been in a reasonably successful secular career. We had a a nice four-bedroomed house overlooking paddocks, Mm -hmm. uh, the things that went with that kind of lifestyle. Mm. And uh, we realised that while ever we continued to live there in that setting, we would not get close enough to the people of Kirby. And we're coming to recognise actually that they knew that already and they were used to treating with contempt and suspicion those who came in to do good and then retreated to a safe distance to their own perfectly nice lifestyles. So from that day we recognised that we needed to live with our tribe in Northwood and so it took about a year or so to uh, get the house moved, sorted out and so on but we moved into Kirby and boy was that the start of an interesting journey. The first thing that we recognised was people's change of attitude towards us. And I do not mean for one minute that the people of Kirby then received us with open arms because it was not like that. In Kirby they say, if you live there 25 years, you're allowed to say you come from Kirby. And when you've been there 50 years, they'll actually count you as coming from Kirby. So it wasn't a change on on the part of the people of Kirby. It was those around us. Um, Wife and I were foster carers and adopters. And we had been sort of flagship representatives for social services while we had our nice house in Rainford. The day we moved to Kirby, that attitude changed. Uh, we became part of the problem as far as they were concerned. And whereas we'd been the ones that they would come to needing help, we now seem to be the, the target uh, for their, uh, well, displeasure in various ways. I don't need to go into all the details. But that in itself was a helpful thing because I presumed that if social services were getting involved in a family, they must have done something to, to cause that and provoke that. To be on the end of it where actually... We're not doing anything different to what we always did, and it was fine before, but now it's not because we've provoked the displeasure of a particular social worker, and now we've got social workers raining down on us. Now we're looking at the possibility of these children being removed from us. To be on the receiving end of that was awful, mm-hmm. just in every way, but also it was so useful. At the minute, we're working with a family who uh, have six children, and social services are trying their best to remove some of those children. Uh, prior to going through that experience myself I would just say well guys you know you need to listen to what they're saying there must be something wrong where they wouldn't be here but having been on the receiving end I do understand that the agenda is not always uh, as honest and transparent as it might appear Uh, and that this family are perfectly capable of caring for their children uh, with with minimal additional help rather than ripping the family apart Mm. so I can sit there in their lounge with, with, a, with a heart that is hurting genuinely for them because I've been through it. Mm. I don't recommend it. It's not a great pathway to go down. It's not mm. the training school you want to be in. But it does get you to that point of uh, being being able to genuinely talk to people. And, and again, you know, um, I don't know who's likely to hear this uh, podcast, but um, you know, our Sunday morning, I don't know how yours was this week, I was kind of looking forward to it and uh, 
uh, we'd had Pasha Bikoba a bit frazzled, but we were getting ready. We've got a visiting speaker coming, so, you know, it wasn't too, too bad. But then there's hammering on the door, uh, and it's bailiffs coming to, with, with a court order, allowing them to come into the house and seize goods and take them away because of a financial situation that one of our sons had got himself into. Now, again, you know, wind the clock back 10 years, I see bailiffs at your door. Well, you know, you must have done something for them to be there. So to be in a situation where we haven't done anything to be there, it's not our fault, but to the rest of the world looking on, it's just what they're used to seeing. It gives me a better uh, foundation from with which to work with somebody who's gone through that themselves and to understand sometimes these things happen way beyond your control for circumstances that you just can't have anything to do with. Mm. Uh, so there's a hundred stories to go at that, yeah. and they're slowly over a period of more than a decade now. Uh, but uh, every one of them is used in God's plan and purpose to get us to understand that we're saved by grace, mm. not because of anything that we, we have or deserve, uh, and therefore to be able to show that same grace and explain that same grace to those that we work amongst, no longer believing ourselves in anyway to be better than them. How has that journey of 10 years and coming to the point of, of what's interesting you say that we're saved by grace, you would have said that 10 years ago. How is, how is, how is when you say that now, is that different to 10 years ago for you? I knew the biblical fact of salvation by grace and certainly would preach and teach it, but I have a better understanding of living the reality of that. Mm. My value system, my lifestyle, so fundamentally opposed to God in every way, and yet he reaches out and grabs hold of me, irrespective of who I am or what I've done. But because he is God, and he is good, and he has chosen me, there's no merit on my part at all. And if he has sent us to Kirby to, to share that grace, then we reach out with that same attitude. We don't judge a person's lifestyle or, or any of those things. And actually, for, from what I said before, we, we hope to have a better insight to understand that maybe some of these things are not quite as self-imposed as, as we would believe. But, but irrespective, that's not the problem, is it? it? It's the fact that God sent us to share grace with these people. Uh, and grace is, uh, well, it's wonderful, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and, and it's real. And it grabs hold of the least likely and the least deserving, started with me, uh, and it reaches out to people like Ken in our church. You know, Ken, I can't give you all the details of his background, it wouldn't be fitting, but he, he was as far away from God as he could possibly be, other than the fact that he regularly attended a Roman Catholic church. Uh, and yet God grabbed hold of him literally as he walked through the town square while we were preaching the gospel in our Passion for Kirby in 2011, and turned his life upside down, he would say. And, uh, and he is now... A product of grace. He's still Ken uh, and people know him and recognise him as Ken because he's lived in Kirby and stuff but he's Ken the new creature Ken. Mm. He's Ken who is the recipient of grace uh, and if Ken can receive grace I'm pretty sure that anybody in Kirby can receive grace because there was none less deserving than him or me for that. Mm. Can I ask Graham just I've got so many questions I'd like to ask um, you talked about how you received these I can't remember the word um, German spectacles uh, <laughs> Veltenschauen spectacles from your family background. What do what impact has all of this had on the way that you are trying to teach and model something different to your family? Mm. And the reason I ask that is because I think lots of Christians would just accept the spectacles you are given are fine and pass them on without thinking to their kids. And you've had to sort of kind of tear that up. What are you doing instead? What what the values you're really trying to instill in your own family? 
Well, I think my family actually are helping me to further remove those spectacles. <laughs> it's the opposite way around, really. Okay. They're teaching me. So, as I mentioned, we're an adoptive family, so we have five children that we've adopted at various ages. And uh, let's start with education. Yeah. Academically, they've not achieved what I would have anticipated my children achieving. Mm. But you know what? It's not such an issue now to me as it would have been. It would have been a pathway to a second-class life. Mm. I now see them as those who God will use for his glory in, in whatever circumstance he chooses, and they don't need a degree to achieve that. Mm. They might not even need a single GCSE. Mm. So we don't bypass education. We, we make it important. We make sure that the children are, uh, are, are available for school and go each day and, mm. and have the right equipment and they uh, have a positive attitude about it. But if they're not capable of, of achieving at the level that I feel I would like them to, that, that's not a, a, an issue to me at all. Mm. And mm. employment. Again, my dad sort of prepared me for a managerial and director type career because that's what he felt is, is best. But my kids, you know, so long as they're in employment that, that is, is appropriate for them and, and it provides for their means and uh, it doesn't become all consuming and, and, and swallow their life up, uh, I, I, I'm happy. So whether they've, they've tried various things between them so far, you know, working at McDonald's and I grew up working at McDonald's was a joke. You know, we'd say to each other, if you don't get your qualifications, you'll get a job at McDonald's. <laughs> These days, you've actually got to try quite hard to get a job at McDonald's. It's by no means a failure, is it? Uh, or if you want to work in a nursery, or if you want to be a carer, or, or one of those jobs that doesn't require the academic level, uh, that does not change their value in God's sight at all. The fact that they may never be in a position to buy their own house, it doesn't change how God sees them at all. In fact, actually, perhaps in some ways, it frees them up from that because they don't get put into the conveyor belt where I've got to achieve all these things and, and maybe five years down the road, ten years, I'll, I'll have some time to serve God. They're not in that model at all. They're, they're mm. kind of free to live the life that they have today uh, without this, this whole hearted commitment to some long-term agenda or goal that they've got to achieve first. It's mm. amazing. So different, isn't it, from what most of us are Absolutely. taught about the value of sure. life. It's really... Interesting. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that any yeah. of those things that were part of my development channel are wrong, but they're not to, to dominate and define yeah. how I, uh, well, my relationship with the Lord, yeah. the people that I work amongst, or my own family. Yeah. There might be other things that I brought up. They might actually have been quite helpful to me in some ways. Mm. Uh, you know, I had good qualifications and I got a great job. But you know what, that great job could have kept me well away from pastoral ministry yeah. because it was so rewarding itself. But God, in his kindness ripped it from my hands mm. and he had to do that because I would have never wanted to let it go mm. so we need to be careful actually some of those things that we hold very dear to which are perfectly uh, right in themselves can can be a, a real obstacle in the long term that's really helpful it, it's interesting isn't it is that all over the bible all over the bible especially in the new testament and we see with paul's paul's letters that there's just this real like you know i'm going to use the, the the foolish to shame the wise I didn't come with lofty speech. I, did, I, didn't, I didn't come with all this. I came with fear and trembling, in weakness and, and in, in light of that. And I think as you're speaking, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm trying to, I'm saying to the Lord, speak to my heart in this. What are the things that I have brought into how I bring my children up, mm. how, 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 I, how I lead the church that I'm part of and how I view just the community that I'm living in. There's a different community to Kirby, but it, it doesn't matter. There's still that sense of, Lord, these are wonderful things that you've given us, education, work, jobs, families, all those sorts of things. Um, money is a wonderful thing if used rightly. 
but it's not the ultimate thing. And it's like, oh, I want to be released from that. And I think it's interesting, Graham. I'm, I'm sitting there as you were talking, I was thinking, I'll ask you this question. Is how, is your ministry now what you expected it to be when you started this over 10 years ago? It actually is what I hoped it would be. Great. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Tell us more. Go on, unpack it. <laughs> so uh, we came with the agenda of, um, and actually it, it, it's longer than I said now, I think but it's 15 years, 2004, we wow. actually, um, I became the pastor there. Our goal was uh, a Northwood church full of Northwood people because we were all imports but we wanted to move in like tribal missionaries in that sense see Northwood people saved and it become a Northwood church so now as I look out at the congregation uh, we particularly pray for men we wanted uh, men to be saved and added to the church remember that small number that I started with but uh, uh, 25% of the congregation now on a Sunday morning are Northwood men who have been brought in through our outreach endeavours two of them know the Lord and are going on with him and two of them are close and we trust that in his time they'll be born again too and the the, the number of people from Northwood now in the church vastly outweighs the number of people not from Northwood in fact looking at it probably only uh, 20% of the church now are not from Northwood and it's not because people have moved into the area like us it's because they're in the area already and have now started attending the church. So, yeah, it is actually the kind of church that I, I longed for, but the journey there has been completely different to uh, the route I would have taken. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask, Graham, one of the... You might be reject being put in this position, which is fine, because you're not at all a sort of angry or judgmental person, which is one of the reasons <laughs> we love you. But as you've identified your own sort of biases you came with that were actually sort of non-gospel biases, they turned out to be barriers to the gospel going to people, you must look at other lots of churches operate totally in that culture altogether. So evangelicalism is just at the moment, I think, a much bigger middle class, quote-unquote middle class movement than it is working class. Or, um, Do you... I guess the first question is, do, does that frustrate you? I guess my second question is, given a platform to those type of Christians, what would you, what do you, what would you want to say? I feel it is very useful to look at your own value system and the things that yeah. push your buttons. And you can only do that for yourself. I don't think, yeah. I think another person could share their experience and point in the right direction. But at the end of the day, you have to be the church that's right for where you are. Yeah. So, for example, you've got a lot of students in your church, haven't yeah. you? Uh, but then you're right in the middle of the city where all the students are, so yeah. that seems entirely appropriate. And I guess students often coming to you will be from a perhaps more middle-class background, have, have those kind of values that I, I relayed. Uh, so why not? You know, you're not uh, creating barriers no. with what you believe in those things. They're right for the people in front of you. If you did a church bond into a different kind of an area, you need to be very careful uh, as to what you were taking with you that yeah. was baggage rather than gospel. Uh, and that would really be as far as I'd go to say, just, mm. just be careful of what you're taking that isn't actually the gospel. As good and as helpful as it may have been to you, is it right for where you're currently sharing the gospel? Yeah, it's really helpful. Have you got any advice on how people can do that? Um, obviously, from your story, that's come through the Lord doing a lot of work on your own heart and, and you know, through pain as, as well within that have you got any thoughts or advice on how folks could do that well without necessarily having to walk through the pain and the suffering now hear me 
I think the pain and the suffering is always going to happen. Mm-hmm. But what I mean is, in terms of being more intentional in, in trying to be wise and in that area. I think a bit of self-inventory, self-examination, as to what what is it that I count important in life, and and try and be very honest to not just uh, regurgitate a set of gospel values that you've grown up with and, and learned how to say. Look at what is it that makes me a person. What what do I what do I do? And I guess perhaps a, a key part of that might be looking at what do I do when I'm not in ministry. Mm. How do I function? Where are my priorities when I'm not actually in the pulpit or I'm not serving on a Sunday? What is it that makes me me? And given that that must undoubtedly still colour and affect how I behave when I'm in my role doing what I should be doing, which of those things are not necessarily helpful? And you know, it, it's not rocket science. A simple you know hour or two with a bit. Of, paper and a pen if people still use that kind of technology. <laughs> Just jotting down those things uh, away from, from the front line can be very helpful. And obviously listening to other people's uh, experiences like these can you know, perhaps give a few pointers as well. Can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the people from Northwood you've seen be converted? Yeah. Um, how are they um, still Northwood Christians? So what does that look like? Because I guess, as you've reflected, um, Someone who goes into the type of environment you're talking about, well-intentioned as a quote-unquote missionary, as you described yourself, has to be committed to the people there becoming Christians and staying those type of people. So what does it look like to be a Northwood Christian? Well, let me answer that by you familiar with the poem Daisy Chains, uh, yeah. which talks about Christians making daisy chains while people march over the uh, <laughs> precipice to hell. If you've ever seen an illustration of that from the... I guess 50s or 60s. It's interesting to note that all the Christians are sat there in white collar shirts <laughs> uh, while the tribal people are marching uh, over the uh, the cliff. So it's important for me that I'm not trying to force a, a new believer into their white shirt and tie and so on. Again, if you talked to me about this a few years back, I might have said, well, obviously when they get saved, uh, they're going to understand that it's not right to just live life milking the benefit system. So they're probably going to have to do a bit of education, get some qualifications, get a job and start honouring the Lord uh, by working for a living, because if a man shall not work, he shall not eat, uh, giving to the church financially, because again, that's a real challenge for us as a church. How do people support a church financially when they all live on benefits that are not generous, really? Mm-hmm. So, so I would have had that kind of mindset. Well, they'll be transformed, won't they? But they would have been transformed into the me that I thought was the important me. <laughs> so let's talk about Ken, and I know you won't mind me talking about him. So Ken, uh, not a single qualification to his name, possibly some learning difficulties as well, but, but never diagnosed because he's from a time before that would have been a, an issue. Uh, uh, he's done employment schemes. Uh, he's had a job actually, I think, working in a non-stick uh, uh, frying pan factory for about six months. But now he's 60. Uh, he will never, realistically speaking, uh, take up employment in the paid sense. He will be dependent on the benefits system for the rest of his life. That doesn't mean that God has failed to save him in any way. Mm. Two community police officers called in the church not long ago and said, what have you done to our Ken? I said, what do you mean? They said, well, he's changed. I said, is it a good change or a bad change? They said, oh, it's a great change. Mm. Well, that's it, isn't it? Ken is now the Ken that he was. He's still unemployed. He still has no qualifications. 
but he's Ken the New Creature in Christ, going around Kirby Town Centre, handing out tracks, telling people, look, this is what's happened to me, you need this too. Mm. So, actually, you know what, I'm not sure Ken needs to change much, I think I need to change more to be like Ken. Mm -hmm. So, that's just one example. Yeah, that's amazing, that's amazing. If you could sum up, if you could sum up for us, that's, you know, this is going to be hard, but if you can sum up for us, bear in mind, the idea of this podcast and chat to you is to try and encourage people who are going into church ministry, specifically pastors, with all the enthusiasm and the idealistic uh, visions that we have to plant churches and to lead congregations. If you could sum up what we've sort of spoken about in the last half an hour, what what would your advice be? I don't believe that God calls people to areas. I think he calls people to people. So if you've been called to a people, you need to get to know those people really well, uh, intimately, uh, beyond just token friendship. You need to live amongst them, you need to understand what makes them tick, what scares them, what gets them out of bed in the morning, what causes them to stay in bed rather than get out of bed in the morning. And as you get to know them, genuinely, you need to compare that to the you that you know and think, well, what parts of my makeup prevent me from effectively sharing the gospel with them? What things do I need to let go of and recognise that in a gospel agenda, these are not priorities at all, so that I can clearly and transparently and honestly and genuinely, without any patronisation whatsoever, share Christ with these people in a way that means something. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah, Amen. Graham, thank you very much. This is an amazing story. I could sit here for another half an hour, another half a day, mm. and hear stories and hear what God is doing. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure people will pray for you and your family and for the church and for Ken. I've just got a vision of Ken walking around, <laughs> chatting to all the policemen, sharing the gospel. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> Being an ex-policeman, that's a, <laughs> just yeah. a great story, a great story. Thanks, bro. God Thank bless you. Thanks for listening to our podcast, Things I Wish I'd Known. And if you want to hear more of these episodes, please subscribe on your podcast uh, platform. And if you want to follow us and have any questions that you'd like us to discuss or speak to other pastors and leaders about, follow us on Twitter. You'll find us under Things I Wish I'd Known.